My name is Akiko Sunny Hussein and I am Global Head of Harney's Regulatory and Tax Practice. Expert Review aims to deliver bite-sized opinions and analysis on key global governance, regulation and tax issues of importance to our clients and the wider community. Each episode features a guest speaker, is unscripted and intends to give listeners food for thought based on trends that we see from our daily practice. In this fifth episode of the current series, we cover the oil and gas and energy-related trade sanctions on Russia following its invasion of Ukraine in 2022. In this regard, I'm delighted to be joined by our guest expert, Ray Shouho, an up-and-coming sanctions star in Reed Smith's energy and natural resources practice based in London. Hello, Ray Shou. Hi, Aki. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. By of background, Ratio works with energy and commodity companies, banks, hedge funds and exchanges on a variety of transactional, regulatory and compliance matters within the sector. Reed Smith's trade sanctions team has fielded thousands of queries and questions from clients in, in the industry since the war began last year. Within this, Ratio's experience includes providing advice to clients on a daily basis on the impact of UK and EU trade sanctions, focusing on the energy and financial services sectors. He has a substantial amount of experience in assisting clients with their compliance policy documents and managing complicated and extensive global jurisdictional reviews. So turning straight to today's topic, can you give us a first roundup and overview of current energy-related sanctions on Russia? So there are two main limbs of the current restrictions, the first being the pre-war sectoral sanctions that most, if not all, the listeners will be familiar with, and therefore I'm not going to elaborate on that. The more current one and the development since then is the post-war sanctions measures, in terms of these, these have expanded to significant import bans by the Western jurisdictions, particularly by the EU, UK and the US, of energy-related products of Russian origin or that have been exported from Russia. And there are very limited exceptions in relation to these type of products. There have also been other measures against several of the key players in the Russian energy sector, such as the EU's Article 5AA transaction ban, But again, these are also subject to limited exemptions for certain permissible trade. So in terms of the permissible trade, the paradigm example is, of course, the widely reported price cap regime that have been imposed by the G7 price cap coalition and increasingly other partners. This essentially permits maritime transactions of Russian origin oil and petroleum products falling under CN or HS code. 2709 and 2710, where they are discharged in non-G7 or EU countries, so long as the price of the cargo complies with the relevant price cap imposed by the G7 price cap coalition. So in other words, given the prevalence of Western tonnage insurance services and maritime services in general for the maritime trade industry, This market intervention intends to limit the amount of profits available to Russian producers and traders. Now, this is done by various means, and one of the key tenets of that is the attestation process, whereby undertakings and warranties are given throughout the entire transaction chain, depending on the type of actor that is involved, ultimately stemming originally from the price information and the the contract price at the beginning of the chain. But is it fair to say that there is a global consensus on the oil price cap? And perhaps more importantly, has it, in your view, has it achieved its, its objectives in practice? So on this point, I'll have to unfortunately give kind of the typical lawyer response of, you know, yes and no. At least from a practical perspective, there is a market acceptance of the oil price cap. And operationally, 
market actors and service providers in the industry have become more comfortable with the documentation and the due diligence process. So by that, I mean the attestation regime, which I mentioned earlier, and the record keeping requirements. So in that sense, the price cap regime has been successful. But the more pressing issue at the moment, and the reason why I say no, is because of the growing caution amidst substantial media reports that Russian oil is being traded at or above the price cap. And this has ruffled some feathers as to, especially with bona fide market actors who are trying to comply with the price cap regime. So based on what we know, and given the fact that there is substantial media reports about this, we expect that the G7 price cap coalition is, is definitely aware of this. So it remains to be seen what further measures or guidance will be issued to assure bona fide actors complying with the price cap regime and give them confidence to trade under there. So I think in that regard, it'd be interesting to understand from Uarchy as to whether there have been any plans for development in the sanctions landscape for the offshore jurisdictions that you're familiar with, or you know, in, in that sense, whether there is currently or intent to align with the price cap coalition rules. The, the first point I would make is that offshore companies have been used prevalently in this sector, whether that be as, as holding companies within groups, in some instances as trading vehicles that also in respect to transportation where the, the flag of the relevant vessel is essentially within an offshore jurisdiction. So it's clearly of relevance. Now, as far as the jurisdictions that we advise on, those that are in the UK overseas territories, so namely BVI, Bermuda, Cayman Islands. So, so these three jurisdictions essentially implement UK uh, sanction in this area. And as far as the, the core UK sanctions regime is concerned, this is implemented on a copy-out basis, essentially, within, within the overseas territories. So from that perspective, the rules align with the position in, in the UK. So the, the restrictions on oil and the importation of oil and the oil price cap rules will apply. One area, however, where there is discrepancy is in the area of licensing. So licensing between the overseas territories and the UK operates on a per-jurisdiction basis. There is some scope for recognition where a general license has been issued between those uh, the UK family of jurisdictions, but, but it's quite constrained. And what we have found in practice is that certain general licenses have not been implemented in the overseas territories where they have been implemented in, in the UK, and in some rare occasions, the reverse of that. So what is important to do, I think, is to certainly check whether those general licenses are implemented, and if not, to take appropriate advice. And we have seen situations where that has caused real-world differences to transactions. A more generic question, I suppose, and speaking to you as a daily sanctions practitioner, what issues have you found particularly challenging over the last 18 months since the invasion in this area? So I think my experience hasn't differed from the generic or every, everyone else's, in, in particular legal and compliance functions. And, you know, I know in your first episode, it was said that amount of work was staggering. And, you know, as, as mentioned in your introduction, it has been. I think what that was driven by was due to the level of uncertainty and the constant evolving legislation, guidance or FAQs. And I think it is fair to say that the rate at which the legislation, guidance and FAQs changed over the last 18 months has been unprecedented. 
as many of the listeners will know, usually where, where legislation guidance, the kind of consultation papers are being changed, there would be an iterative process, there would be public consultation to ensure that as many potential gaps in the legislation and drafting are dealt with before going live you know, and before implementation. But due to the fast-paced nature of the war and how legislation guidance and FAQs were being rolled out across various jurisdictions, I think the, the initial challenge has been for legal and compliance functions is just to keep up with these changes, not least to respond to them and then form views on various uncertainties around the practicalities of such rules, some of which still are outstanding, despite the fact that the market has become more comfortable with how they're being implemented or in how they operate. So generally for now, the rate of changes has calmed down. And so that challenge is such somewhat more nuanced at the moment. The main challenge that is still presenting is essentially the limitations of desk-based due diligence, especially as you mentioned earlier about in relation to complex ownership structures, and in particular where UBO information is not available through public registries. And I think for this particular point, and many listeners, including myself, would be interested to know your thoughts on what the general attitude of the offshore regulators are, where there are such complex corporate structures involving entities incorporated in their jurisdiction. So I think the starting point for that is to distinguish between the requirements under the sanctions regime and the requirements under the broader AML regime. So firstly, in respect of, of sanctions, as, as we know, generally speaking in this area, the key element is to establish ownership and control, with control having a particularly nuanced definition in sanctions law. Contrast that with the AML regime, which to an extent does recognise the concept of control, but the focus is certainly on, on ownership and underlying ownership, and that follows through for UBO registers. Now, in the offshore jurisdictions, the UK overseas territories that we advise on, there was a drive in around 2017 under the David Cameron government in the UK to ensure that centrally held or centrally accessible beneficial ownership that registers that were put in place. And that, that happened. Now, the difference between that and the current discussion about UBA registers is that those those registers are essentially privately held, so they're not publicly available. So if the authorities in those jurisdictions need to have access to those registers, then they presently can. The other aspect there is that unlike in the UK, the way that those registers operate is to leverage off the experience of the registered agents and the corporate service providers in those jurisdictions that, that actually vet the due diligence that is coming through in accordance with AML rules. So, so the quality of information should, and this is very much a, a general point governing all jurisdictions rather than anything specific, but it should be fairly accurate. Now, of course, as you mentioned, Ratio, that is not information that is publicly available. So that then, as a sanctions practitioner working typically with a financial institution that may not have access to that uh, UBO information, that does then create extra work and there is a requirement to go beyond uh, what is publicly available. And in our experience there, there is a, a requirement for, for parties to, to work constructively with each other and to, wherever possible, work with counterparties to establish what the ownership and control may be. That's not always possible. And I think there's some recognition in the sanctions regime on that as well. Broadly speaking, the question of ownership and control 
is not one of knowledge only. Clearly, if you know that someone is owned or controlled or a company is owned or controlled by X individual, whoever that may be, then that's that's relevant. But the question is also whether you as an institution have reasonable cause to suspect that that could be the state of affairs as well. So you don't have to prove it to the nth degree. If, it, if it's reasonable, then you should freeze assets. And it also means that the authorities can have the discretion to issue a license and they don't have to go to the nth degree to prove whether that state of affairs is actually correct. And that's been consistent with our experience as well, where we've submitted many license applications over the years, or certainly the months since the invasion in 2022, that it has been a case of providing up as much evidence as we possibly can to the regulators. In some instances, they come back and query things, and in other instances, they accept the due diligence being provided. Right. So next, I wanted to turn to a, a specific issue, Again, focusing on the oil and gas nature of this podcast, possibly the most strategically important company in in Russia in this area is Gazprom. Obviously, Russia is uh, the world's or one of the world's largest gas producers, if not the largest. And Gazprom is very much at the at the top of that. And I, I wondered, Ratio, if you could give us an outline of the various sanctions that are applicable to the various parts of Gazprom, and whether you see sanctions increasing, whether there's a likely change in future in the sanctions, especially considering the dependency of Europe on Russia gas? I think it's it's important that you've drawn the distinction of the various Gazprom entities. Gazprom is thrown around quite a lot, but specifically, there are three different, I would say, group structures within Gazprom which have distinct sanctions, rules and restrictions applying to them. Uh, I'll go through the list, but first of all, being Gazprom Bank, that's obviously the financial institution arm. That, at least from the UK and US side, has asset freeze restrictions imposed on it. On the EU side, there are currently no such extensive restrictions on it. However, the interplay with Western financial institutions and the like due to the UK and US sanctions has caused some issues where many financial institutions and many Western actors, generally speaking, are exposed to compliance with UK and US sanctions. That has, whilst the EU hasn't imposed restrictions on Gazprom Bank, that has had practical effects around it. With regards to Gazprom NAFT, which is typically known as the oil production arm, in that sense, as mentioned earlier, you know there are various restrictions in relation to it. So, in, in relation to it, such as the debt and equity restrictions that many people will be familiar with pre-war sanctions, which have extended somewhat since then. In relation to you know the maturity date as well as the date of issuance in relation to such debt and equity, there is also the transaction ban that's been imposed by the EU under Article Five AA. However, keeping in mind and making sure that such restrictions are consistent and work with the intention to allow oil to flow to third countries, there are exceptions around that too. And finally, the gas production arm, which is gas from PJSC. With regards to that, there are various debt and equity restrictions relating to it. Again, these kind of 
bounce around, mainly bounce from the post-war sanctions imposed by the UK and the US around debt and equity issues as to when such debt and equity were issued, mainly after 2022, that's when the restrictions kick in. In terms of the future as to you know whether there'll be more sanctions restrictions or not, as far as Gazprom Bank and Gazprom Neft are involved, I think the sanctions restrictions are quite extensive as it is. And given the foreign policy objectives of the oil price cap, it's unlikely to expand any much further. With regards to Gazprom PJSC for the gas side, that really depends. You know, as many of the listeners will know, since the war began, the EU has indicated commitments to diversify its energy imports and reliance for obvious reasons. As far as I'm aware of, this is still a developing project. And given the current cost of living crisis and also the fact that Europe is heading into winter, it may be that there's unlikely to be any changes in the status quo in relation to Gazprom PJSC in the near future, at least. So I guess bringing back to what we were talking about earlier in the general context as well, what has been your experience in the level of engagement by the relevant authorities, in particular where there is uncertainties or with regards to the various FAQs have been published? Has there been additional steps taken by such regulators and authorities in that regard? So dealing first with the, the UK family of jurisdictions that we work with in the overseas territories in, in the Caribbean, they haven't issued any distinct guidance from that that is provided by the UK. So they very much play to the, the UK fiddle in that regard. There have been presentations and webinars and those sorts of things locally on the ground in some of the territories. But again, those have been arranged by the FCDO from the UK. And so they very much follow the UK approach there. On the EU side, things have been a little bit different. The European Commission has really come into its own since the war began in this area. I think historically, it was really the Council of the EU that was the significant body that generated guidance. And really now we're seeing Commission FAQs that are as important, if not more important in practical terms to, to a lot of these issues, in particular in the oil and gas area. And we've also seen this guidance go beyond in certain respects, what is provided for in the regulations themselves. So so the Commission, I think, has, has definitely been pushing the envelope and made some very important announcements. And in, in particular, one that comes to mind immediately is the aggregation rule, where an entity is owned by more than one frozen person, then we are required from an EU perspective to aggregate that ownership to determine whether that entity crosses the line of being majority owned by frozen persons. So I think that's still distinct from, from the UK position there. So clearly guidance has been very important at that level. At a member state level, it's been it's been a bit a bit different. There has been some guidance in our jurisdictions we advise on, which is Luxembourg and Cyprus. Again, lots of webinars and profile raising exercises by the various ministries. These typically look to issues of licensing policy. So it's the procedures relevant because uh, to, to licensing because the member states themselves are the competent authorities for, from an EU perspective. Once you, when you want a license, you have to go into that member state institution, whether that be the Ministry of Finance or some, some more dedicated authority within the relevant member state. So guidance has, has usually been at that level. At the beginning of the, the conflict, we did see an attempt by some member states to issue, that we advise on for some member states to issue the guidance, 
But that really, I think, stopped and I can think, certainly think of one example where a relevant member state got itself into some difficulty in terms of justifying some of the guidance that was being issued against the overall EU framework. So I think they're now taking a more unified line in that area, but equally keen to hear your feedback on that. In terms of license applications themselves, and whether the dynamic is is more probing or otherwise again our experience there is there is a there is a diversity it reflects the the diverse nature of the eu in terms of having different member states and we've certainly seen a diversity of approach between the member states some member states in our experience, look purely at the legal issues involved. I think others look at the more optical and to some degree political issues that are involved as well before exercising their discretion. So very last question then to Ratio. What is the, and and really to round up our discussion, what would you say are the key sanctions takeaway for for operators in, in, in this area? So I think with most legal developments, enforcement and court decisions usually follow initial uncertainties, which, as we all know, there are a number of. So whilst there has generally been silence surrounding this issue to date, somewhat surprisingly, there has been a slow uptick in enforcement reports, not least the UK offices recent publication since the war began a few weeks ago. I think it is expected that a lot more will follow in the future. If it is not from the enforcement actions, then at least it would be in relation to the various and you know, the multiple contractual disputes that are before various dispute resolution forums, namely the London High Courts. And you know, I am sure there are a number of them that are before the various arbitral tribunals as well, but for various reasons, including confidentiality, you know, it might be difficult to understand how those progressed. But in any event, for any operator in the area, I think there'll be significant learnings and precedents that will be set from all these determinations and reports. One such example would be, you know, the limitations of sanctions clauses that would likely be tested to its limits where the drafting previously has been, in certain clauses has been somewhat less robust than what is required now, given the nuances between the various sanctions regimes. With thanks to our expert ratio for a tour of key themes relevant to energy operators, Russia has been a fundamental global player, and these sanctions are globally reshaping the industry and will continue to do so for for many years to come. From ratio and myself, we hope you found today's podcast helpful. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye.